STEMI, the Stanford Emergency Medicine Innovation Podcast, where we explore the future of innovation within and around the field of emergency medicine. I'm Dr. Dan Imler, entrepreneur and faculty physician with Stanford University Department of Emergency Medicine. Each week, I sit down for a wide-ranging conversation with individuals pushing the boundaries of technology, research, education, systems, and design within emergency medicine. From the front lines of healthcare entrepreneurship to breakthroughs in the lab, we explore innovations in the science, practice, and art of creating precision emergency medicine that can transform healthcare for all. To stay current on the latest innovations and tips, please be sure to click subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please also send us your thoughts and questions to respond to in future episodes. And now, let's get started. All right, I'm here with Dr. Karen Frosch, who's the Chief Quality Officer at Stanford Medical Center and a a pediatric emergency medicine physician. Thank you for uh, taking some time. My pleasure. Um, I think maybe to start with, I'd love to hear you sort of codify, and I've had problems with this myself in the past, what the difference between quality, safety, clinical effectiveness, performance improvement, lean, the, the, the words go on and on. Where, what is quality in an academic or a or typical mm-hmm. hospital? Where does that live? Mm-hmm. So to me, the, the way I ground it and anchor it is um, that I go back to the IOM report. So there were two IOM reports, one to Air is Human, which primarily talks about safety, unintentional harm, Mm-hmm. Uh, to errors, human, et cetera, et cetera. The second is crossing the quality chasm. Yep. And that defines quality in the pyramid with safety as foundational and then adds in effectiveness, efficiency, equity, patient-centeredness, timely. So six, six components of quality with a definition that says um, that this is not exact, but basically delivering care that's optimal to the patient. Okay. Okay. So in a lot of hospitals, like our hospital, there is a different person sort of for each one of those buckets. How do they mm-hmm. interact? Are they like horizontally across the plane? Are they mm-hmm. like, is the patient safety officer underneath the quality? Like where do, where do they fit? Is that all under the CMO? Uh, what I've seen. Yeah. So, so it differs. It differs. There's no, uh, there's no uh, one standard. Um, I think it is pretty common for chief quality officers to report to the CMO, the chief medical officer. Again, is a core piece under medical leadership in the hospital setting. Uh, there are CQOs. I reported. Well, I was the chief patient safety officer at Duke uh, for 15 years. I reported to the chancellor. Um, of the health care system and that was in many ways because i um they created that role after the major patient safety event when a teenage uh girl was killed when we transplanted the wrong blood type heart lungs in her and so the board said that that will never happen and again the board said there'll be this magic position reporting to the chancellor the report the reporting structure in my mind, was more important, you know, a decade ago when we were still trying to get attention around the fact that safety and quality are important and it wasn't part of the everyday discussion and we needed authority 
to uh, help it be recognized as important. Um, today, it's more common, I think, the chief quality officer reports to the CMO, as we talked about. Um, in bigger systems and bigger hospitals, there is often a CQO and a patient safety officer, CPO, which chief, it, so Sam Shen is our patient safety officer. Um, because, and probably again, because of my formal role, but I do see safety as very foundational to quality with all the other effectiveness, efficiency, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And tell me a little bit about your personal story, how you've moved into this field, because I, I can't, I haven't heard of a lot of EM physicians in this role, but I'd love to mm -hmm. hear how you moved mm -hmm. into that role. Mm -hmm. I honestly think that a lot of, there are very clear reasons in my mind why my background in PDM helped lead me to this role. Um, so, so going all the way back, first of all, I think, you know, I was a nurse before going into medicine mm -hmm. and there's no question in my mind that the view of care at the bedside and the need to deliver that care through a team is critically important that, that care delivery is well beyond the limitations of any individual. So that, yeah. that's one thing. The other thing that the nurse doc stuff did was teach me a whole lot about communication and communication breakdown, importance of teamwork, et cetera, in addition to the system stuff. Um, so after being a nurse and becoming a physician and specifically pediatric emergency physician, one of my early leadership roles at Duke was to lead the injury prevention center. Yeah. And that's just key. I mean, so much of PDM in my mind is prevention. Yeah. Right. Because once kids are, you know, once a child falls downstairs in a walker that, you know, and it's got a primary brain injury, you can cause a secondary brain injury or you can give, give good care and hope that the effects of the primary brain injury are minimal. Yeah. Um, but it's all about prevention, both illness and injury. And so I, look back and see many times that my mindset of, you know, how do we prevent harm to kids from injuries? I spent a lot of my time working directly with kids, bringing them into the ED and having them lay on a stretcher with a collar on. This is what happens if you're in a car crash and the paramedics, you know, simulating that yeah. in many, many ways. And so that's what I tended to do with patients. How do we prevent harm? And this is, unintentional harm because of choices or actions we as providers make in the hospital, not intending harm at all, but neither does a parent intend harm to a child when they put them in the walker and it's by the stairs. Yep. So I, I, it's, it's all connected in my mind and it's that view of prevention, intentional choice, if we can help people reflect and realize that some of this stuff truly is preventable, not all of it, but so much of it is, yeah. but it's not just, it's not just about building systems to catch the errors, to prevent harm. It's getting into the heads of people and the decisions they're making to help prevent harm. And have you spent most of your time doing that? directly to patients or to the providers to prevent the harm once, like you've said, that secondary in injury? 
that maybe you know, we can cause or misdecisions, yeah. misdiagnosis, those kinds of things? Um, both, both. I, I, it's been, um, I've done less on the diagnostic error side and in the thought, the cognitive piece, um, more on the behavioral side related to the communication, teamwork, social. So, so I, I'm a big believer in healthcare as a highly complex socio-technical industry. Mm -hmm. um, there's a huge people side and a huge technical side. And uh, you, I need to think about them differently and combined because there are some very uh, important things that we have to do from the people side uh, and the technical side. Can you give me an example of where that would play in? Yeah. So, you know, um, so a, a simple example is, um, let's just use PCM as an example. So the fact that prior to brilliant people like you who do IT things and help make it easier for people, um, I, I clearly remember going into the hospital one morning when my colleague had worked overnight and a child had gotten 10 times the dose of medicine mm -hmm. because there was a math error and the literature is full of math errors. And we, we literally worked in an environment where we had to do math yeah. when we were trying to resuscitate children or just care, care for children. And so, um, you know, the, the technical side fixed to that is clearly create the computerized systems where you can put a weight in that will make you do kilos and not pounds yeah. and do the calculation and give you, and further, that it doesn't give you just the milligram dose for the doc, but it converts it to the number of mills a nurse needs to draw up depending on what your formulations are. So it's really, really complicated. And as you know, we give morphine all the time and there are seven, eight or 10 formulations of morphine. So yeah. you have to get to that level of detail. So that's the technical side. The, there's a people side of that too. And that is the communication between the nurse and the doc, that, the, that there is an environment that if the nurse questions it at all, the nurse will speak up and ask a question. And if that happens, the doctor will actually receive that question as a gift of a second chance to rethink rather than a defensive reaction because I'm the doctor. Yeah. So there's a people, very much a people side and a, a culture side, uh, a communication side, a relationship side, and very much a technical side. And they're both really important. And one without the other doesn't, does, doesn't provide a very good, the safety net still has holes in it. Yeah. When you've tried, uh, kind of digging in on that behavior change aspect, when you've tried to drive that culture change in it, in a situation, have there been some core learnings where you're like, this is what, th this is what really matters? Um, because you'll see people try to do educational interventions versus systematic interventions, financial interventions. Like mm -hmm. what has it been that when you say, hey, if I really want to change someone's behavior, these are the, this is the core thing that I need to do. Uh I'll tell you that the, the thing that springs right to my mind is start young. Mm -hmm. I have been so impressed at how we can have these kinds of conversations with senior medical students who know enough about the clinical setting to put it in context and definite senior medical students and residents. And I have seen 
residents um, involved in conversations where a senior attending would listen to that resident way more than me yeah. in my role in the hospital uh -huh. um, versus this person who, it, uh, to me, it's just amazing how residents learn from faculty and faculty. There are a number of faculty who learn a lot from residents, especially if the resident is comfortable talking about something that the faculty member just doesn't get. Yeah. I, I, I found that to be a very, you know, that, that's the whole conversation of it's really, really hard to change culture once it's formed. Yeah. It's really, really hard to change embedded behaviors. It takes a whole lot of work, but let's at least not pass that on to the next generation. Let's and then uh, then it becomes there's a there's a another side of that which is you know, does not at all believe that and that resident gets slammed so yeah. there, there's a danger side of that but yeah so kind of that whole uh, somewhat idea of progress happens one funeral at a time right mm -hmm. and, Make sure that you get it at the generational level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so when you're looking kind of forward now, where quality is going to kind of move in the next decades, mm -hmm. what do you see as kind of the big innovations that are going to happen in this space moving forward? Mm -hmm. So, so I think one of the things we really have to think about is kind of what we just talked about on the people side. You know, the because technology allows virtual. I mean, look at this, you know, I'm in North Carolina and you're in California and yep. um, because technology allows interactions that we never were able to have before. Um, I think from a safety quality perspective, how does one deliver high quality, i.e. effective, safe care virtually? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, you know, we, we, our virtual visit shot up to whatever it was, 80 yeah. percent uh, during the COVID time. And now it's back down to 30 or 40 because people find they want that people interaction. So so what's the sweet spot? Um, and um, and and what do we need to do as providers if 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 uh, virtual care um, tele visits are very, very effective in many settings, but what's, I don't think we have it quite right yet in terms of what is the, what do we do to augment the people side of things to allow that to keep going? Because it, again, I mean, this isn't coming in and, you know, fixing the widget. This is, there, there's a lot of stuff that we need to connect into and, and how, how do you do that in a virtual setting? So, so that's clearly one. Um, I, I do think that, um, the other is um, to me, it's quality, and and I uh, I don't I don't know what well a number of people think it, but because of where I am in my life, you know, it's the whole end of life thing, mm -hmm. and this whole conversation about safety and quality. Quality means, and this is where I go back to the IOM definition: delivering the most effective care from the patient's perspective. So uh, at Stanford, we have lots of conversations in areas where people can provide the most advanced care. 
uh, where uh, there is a long period of suffering, and you could argue, and many people on the team watch profound suffering when a physician isn't willing to give up yet and doesn't know how to, hasn't learned how to, will not allow themselves to invite a patient voice into that. So I, I think the, 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 one of the things that concerns me from a safety and certainly a quality perspective is how do we do this together going forward mm-hmm. um, and make sure that we are providing what the patient wants? Yeah, not just because what the system wants. So much capability that we didn't have before. Yep. When you think of sort of the rise of value-based care, we're starting to see it now. You know, it's like somewhere in the 30 to 40% now, but it's projected to go into the 60, 70% of the next five years. Mm-hmm. How do you think value-based care is going to impact quality, both your role and what it means to the hospital? Yeah, so um, so to me, value-based care is quality over cost, right? Yep. Improve, quote, quality, cut, get down costs. Um, you know, that's the triple aim, the IHI triple aim. Uh, add in the people's component of that, taking care of ourselves while we're doing it. That's the quadruple aim. Um, I think it's so highly connected. I don't, I don't see value. I see value at, as, frankly, a component of quality from my perspective rather than quality component of value. And that is that the cost of medicine is real. It is one, the cost of drugs, the cost of doing this, et cetera, et cetera. I think that... Um, when you get into this whole area of value, that includes access, that includes um, drug costs, that includes et cetera. Um, I, I'm glad we're including those conversations in the in the things that we're doing. I mean, it, we, we're only starting to think about allowing people to understand what things cost as we order them mm-hmm. because we thought, Ethically, that wasn't good because we might that might, and I mean there's there's that side of it as well. But how could we have for decades and decades and decades uh, not even known the cost of things that were? So anyway, so so value to me again. I'll just the simple answer is the broad definition that I uh, think makes sense is that cost has a big component that we have to learn how to think more effectively about in the setting of what is the best care for a patient, yeah. i.e. quality. Because driving, let's just make it easy and say, you know, driving, it's up to a, it's up to a patient and family whether they want to owe money for the rest of their lives and, and be bankrupt. It's, it's up in addition to up to us to find ways to reduce costs. That's a very personal decision, just like, anyway. Yeah, it seems like maybe that is a choice they do want to have. Maybe that's a choice they don't want to have. That's right. Um, Obviously, our institution, but many institutions are driving for this, you know, movement towards precision health. And I'd love to hear how you think of this in terms of quality, because so much of quality that I've seen moving in the past has been all about standardization 
mm-hmm. doing you know this the same thing on everybody so that we make sure that we do the same thing correctly mm-hmm. but now we're into a different model where it's like okay we want to treat everybody differently mm-hmm. based on their unique characteristics how do you reconcile this because i've had yeah. almost some difficulty in my own head trying to reconcile those two things it's a great it's a great question and a great discussion item at stanford for sure so um so to your point standardization is so important but but i think like many things that we do in medicine when people are standardization they like you know rebel against that because you know we don't want to do cookbook medicine etc standardization doesn't mean the same way the same time every time because we're talking about people that's that's why this thing is so much more complex it is some it is in my mind it's a minimum standard applied to the unique person and and that the quote art of medicine meant you could do any single thing you wanted to do so so i i call it more evidence-based evidence-guided and evidence continues to evolve so it remains very complex but we have enough evidence now to guide a number of things that we we haven't used optimally i think so so that's that's sort of my first view of that um i think it's been about a year or so ago i was actually i had the opportunity to be on a committee that was initially called um population health and precision care something like that yeah uh, and the first couple of conversations in the committee were that that there's precision health on this side down to the DNA and the genetics and this very, very specific individuals and pop health, general population. And we wrestled with all of that until these things finally, the name of the committee became precision and population health. Yeah. So that the, that they don't have to be, um, disparate and contrasting, but in the setting of pop health, where let's go back to, we have evidence that um, these approaches, these medicines, these pathways, the, this this piece is generally, you know, these screenings are generally good for this whole population. That yeah. population is made up of individual people with individual genetic information that you can refine that. Okay. It, so in my mind, precision health is a refinement of the evidence-based approach, the broad screening efforts, et cetera. And, and, and precision medicine begins to speak again to the fact that this isn't care of widgets. This is care of people. And it's where we begin to respect the individual person. Does that make, does that make sense? Sure does. I think that's a great note to end on. I love the idea of, of bringing kind of population health as kind of the basic that everybody should get. Mm-hmm. And then we hone in more and more on top of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much, Karen. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. This interview is intended to explore the process of innovation and does not in any way indicate endorsement by Stanford or by our physicians of companies or products being featured.